Education is what's important. Training, preparation for the expected. Education, preparation for the unexpected. Okay, good morning, Team Kulak community. And on behalf of Marine Corps University, the Marine Corps University Foundation, and the Brew Kulak Center for Innovation and Future Warfare, welcome back to the Brewcast, our series designed to connect the worlds of the warfighter and PME with the best in innovative and creative thought. I'm your host, Major Ian Brown, Operations Officer at the Kulak Center. Before we begin, please remember that all opinions expressed here are those of the individual and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Krulak Center, Marine Corps University, the United States Marine Corps, or any other agency of the U.S. government. Today, um, we are very happy to welcome Dr. Anahid Matosian, who is the subject matter expert for Women, Peace, and Security Studies at Marine Corps University, and she's been sitting here with us in the Krulak Center, um, uh, enhancing our work here with her own knowledge. This interview is long overdue since she's been here for a while, so we're very happy to have her on board and uh, and get into how both her, her expertise and her background from her previous work on the Syrian conflict, but also looking at how, uh, well, I guess, how we can apply it and what we can expect on the war in Ukraine. Because it's, at some point, as it gets to, I mean, I, not even at some point today, and then at some point in the future, some of these issues are going to become um, much more important, um, although some of them have already sort of reached a, a critical point as well. So um, we're gonna, what we're going to be talking about today from her perspective are the different roles women play during conflict, um, their post-conflict experiences, and uh, and more. So prior to coming here to Marine Corps University as the WPS subject matter expert, Dr. Matosian worked as a social scientist for the Center for Advanced Operational Cultural Learning, or CAOCL, their trans, excuse me, translational research group. She received her PhD in anthropology in May 2021 from the University of Kentucky, her MS in Anthropology from Purdue University and BA in Anthropology and Arabic, Armenian, Persian, Turkish, and Islamic studies from the University of Michigan. She has 10 years of experience conducting ethnographic research with displaced women from Syria and Turkey and conducting this in places from Los Angeles to Yevera, excuse me, Yerevan. Yerevan, Armenia, Berlin, and Istanbul. Originally from Michigan, she grew up hearing oral history accounts from relatives about forced displacement and survival which sparked her interest at an early age to capture and amplify these narratives for diverse audiences. Her research focuses on gender, migration, conflict, and political anthropology, and regionally on the Middle East, especially Syria and South Caucasus, Armenia. She's very happy to be part of the MCU team here and uh, bring all of her experiences to benefit Marine Corps professional education here. So Dr. Matosian, welcome. Like I said, long overdue, we're happy to finally have you on. And I'll go ahead and pull up uh, your first slide here and I'll turn it over to you. Thank you, Major Brown. Good morning, everyone. Um, today, I'll be talking a little bit about a recap of what exactly Women, Peace, and Security is, because not everyone might be familiar with it. I certainly wasn't an expert before I started this job. Um, so I'll, I'll do a brief recap of that in terms of uh, relevance for the Department of Defense. Um, I'll be spending a few minutes going over WPS concerns in Ukraine. And interspersed throughout this, um, this presentation, I will be talking about uh, giving some examples, some stories from my research with Syrian refugee women in Armenia. Um, so just to recap, I, or just to, just to say at the beginning, my research worked, I worked with ethnic Armenian women from Syria who fled to Armenia. I also did some preliminary field work in Berlin, Germany, uh, Istanbul, Turkey, and Yerevan, Armenia. So most of my work was done in Yerevan, Armenia, only due to the language skills. 
I don't speak Arabic, Turkish, or German, um, and I prefer to just um, do interviews in a language that I can understand. I speak Armenian, um, just to make it easier to process the data. So without further ado, um, I do want to have a content warning for this because I'll be sharing some personal stories. Um, all of the names are pseudonymized, so they're not the real names, just protect um, human subjects research. And um, the content will talk about sexual violence in war, um, so sometimes in graphic detail, but won't be too, yeah, it'll be enough. So just to be aware of that. Okay, so what is Women, Peace, and Security? Uh, the Women, Peace, and Security traces its roots back to UN Security Council Resolution 1325, which is the first global recognition of the disproportionate impact of conflict on women and girls and their necessary role in preventing and resolving conflict. The 27, in 2017, the U.S. signed the Women, Peace, and Security Act into law in the, um, in the U.S. and it tasked the Department of Defense, which is including the Marine Corps, of course, uh, State Department, Department of Homeland Security, and USAID as implementing departments. So with the Marine Corps the past year, we've been working on implementing uh, women, peace, and security in professional military education. So the, there are three defense objectives for the Women, Peace, and Security Act uh, pertaining to the DOD. The first one is the DOD exemplifies a diverse organization that allows for women's meaningful participation across the development, management, and employment of the joint force. Two, women and partner nations meaningfully participate and serve at all ranks and in all occupations in defense and security sectors. And the third defense objective is partner nation defense and security sectors ensure women and girls are safe and secure and that their human rights are protected, especially during conflict and crisis. So now that we know a little bit about what a WPS is, which is basically about meaningful participation of women and girls in um, and preventing and resolving conflict, as well as participation in defense and security sectors. And uh, now we'll shift to Ukraine. So I want to put out here right in front that I am not a Ukraine expert. These are just based on my observations, based on my expertise working with Syrian refugee women in Armenia. Um, and there are several things I want to talk about today in terms of Ukraine. The first one is about sexual violence and conflict zones. The other one is about protection of women in general. Um, and another aspect I noticed about the conflict in Ukraine is the different roles that women play. So not just as victims, but also as community organizers and as combatants. So interspersed throughout this next segment about Ukraine, I will be talking about um, giving some examples from my own fieldwork with Syrian refugee women in Armenia, and I will be sharing stories from Turkey as well. Um, and the woman I interviewed in Turkey, she's actually not Armenian, she's Palestinian and Syrian. Okay, so in terms of sexual violence in conflict zones, rape is, has frequently been documented as a, a weapon of war and as a way of erasing ethnic identity through patrilineage. So patrilineage, patrilineage, at least as far as anthropologists understand it, is that's where your, your ethnic identities are passed down through your father's group. So if you are a Ukrainian woman, for example, and you're raped by a Russian soldier, just for example, that means that your identity will be determined from the father's side. So, and this has been documented a few times. Uh, NPR had an example of um, a case from U the Ukrainian Ombudswoman for Human Rights, Vimila Denisova, uh, quote, 
about 25 girls and women aged 14 to 24 were systematically raped during the occupation in one basement of a house in Bucha. Nine of them were pregnant. Russian soldiers told them they would rape them to the point where they wouldn't want sexual contact with any man to prevent them from having Ukrainian children. So, unquote. To me, this indicates a sort of ethnic cleansing, ethnic erasure, and through rape, in that sense. You see the similar case uh, happening with Yazidi girls and in the case of ISIS years ago. Um, and by raping women, it was a way of erasing their ethnic and religious identity categories. And but also, interestingly, in the case of Yazidis, there are forgiveness by local religious elites about the rape. So they're recognized even after they were raped and accepted back into the community instead of being banished and shamed. That's very noteworthy. So another thing I want to talk about in terms of sexual violence is that it's part of international law of occupation and international human rights law that belligerent armed forces that have effective control of an area they're subject to these laws. So this prohibits willful killing, rape, and other sexual violence, torture, and inhumane treatment of captured combatants and civilians in custody. Uh, even commanders of forces who knew about the crimes or had reason to know about the crimes but didn't stop them, they're actually also criminally liable for war crimes as a matter of command responsibility. So you really can't do this in conflict zones. Um, another aspect and actually, I do want to interject here with um, a quick story from my field work. Um, her name is, she's an Armenian woman named Karine. And so she was escaping from Syria to Armenia. So this is a, a map of the uh, Armenian genocide, but if you can see Syria and just the migration route. So um, basically what I found during my interviews is that there were a lot of um, concerns by mothers, especially about them getting raped or their daughters getting raped while fleeing from Syria to Armenia. And they would actually cross the area where 100 years earlier, their ancestors, and mine as well, I'm also descended from Armenian genocide survivors, they would pass through these lands um, where the same thing happened, sexual violence and mass killings to their ancestors uh, 100 years ago. So, um, I'm talking about two different time periods, 1915, as well as my research. Uh, the women who fled during my research, they fled from 2012 to 2014. So you can see some um, circularity of the trauma here. So one woman said um, her, she and her father did encounter, they call um, ISIS Daesh, that's the Arabic acronym to refer to the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria. Um, they encountered Daesh militants along the journey from Syria to Armenia by car, and Daesh, they would look through their belongings and passports. She said there was pressure from them. Daesh told us, if you're Armenian, don't come back to Syria, because Armenians are an ethnic minority group in Syria. Uh, fortunately, her husband was from a Muslim-majority town, and one of the, of the Daesh militants was from her husband's hometown, and he recognized them at a checkpoint and helped them escape. She was concerned about herself and her daughters. Quote, I was worried about being killed during the journey and Daesh separating the boys and the girls. I was definitely worried about getting raped and my daughter's getting raped too. Years of gender-based violence and crimes against their children seem to be the primary motivating factor for fleeing rather than deciding to come to Armenia based on state messaging campaigns on repatriation. 
the eeriness of passing through hallowed ancestral villages, towns, and cities in Western Armenia, which is, um, I should explain, it's now part of Eastern Turkey and Southeastern Turkey, but historically, a lot of Armenians viewed that as Western Armenia. Um, so they had to pass through this area along the Syrian-Turkish border and route to safety in Armenia via Georgia because the border is closed between Armenia and Turkey, so they had to go through Georgia. Um, they were escaping war and bandana terrorists, just as their ancestors had done during the genocide. So you can see how uh, sexual violence is a primary factor, motivating factor for fleeing, of course. Uh, another aspect about Ukraine and going back to present is uh, the protection of women from sexual violence, of course, as well as human trafficking. So family separation, as we've seen since men are prohibited from, men between the ages of 18 and 16 in Ukraine are prohibited from leaving Ukraine. So um, that leaves many women and girls having to flee. And I saw this uh, last month when I was visiting Ireland in the passport control line, there was, um, I was, of course, in the U.S. passport lane, but there was um, a group of women and girls in the Ukraine. And there were, I saw very few men there, which is pretty indicative. Um, so family separation increases potential for sexual exploitation and trafficking. Um, and there's also documented cases about discrimination against Roma women and children. So there's, um, there are subdivisions between ethnic groups as well. And... Um, so the prohibition of men from leaving Ukraine because men are have to do military service or have to fight because the country's at war. Um, so women then bear multiple burdens as caretakers of uh, the elderly and children and the sole breadwinners for the families. And I saw this during my interviews as well. Um, in many cases, there were women who were married and their husbands were either injured, killed, or otherwise unable to work. So all of a sudden, um, uh, women didn't really have to. The women that I interviewed didn't really have to work in Syria, but in Armenia, they have to uh, take on this new role as a breadwinner. Um, so we'll get to that in a little bit. Um, so other comments about Ukraine is women had 93% of all single-headed households in Ukraine, and this, they are predominantly affected in eastern Ukraine. I got this statistic from CARE, Gender Analysis Ukraine. Um, this also leads to higher risk for food insecurity and poverty due to the, the burden on a sole breadwinner, including single parents with multiple children or children with disabilities for caring for elderly family members. Aside from sexual violence, Russia's targeting maternity hospitals, as we've also seen in Syria, um, hospitals and medical personnel were also targeted. Uh, it actually increases maternal mortality rates as well. So women are at a huge risk in, in Ukraine. Um, so jumping from women as victims of war, which of course we can't ignore talking about Ukrainian sexual violence, um, they're also community organizers and combatants. So um, focusing on women solely as victims actually ignores their agency and contribution in the ongoing war. So I'll be sharing another example about um, this woman who fled, who, um, excuse me, before I jump into the roles of women and girls in war, I want to talk about um, the issues of fleeing without a male companion, which is something that we've seen, we're seeing in Ukraine, and we've seen it, we've seen it in Syria as well. So here's another little segment I have 
Um, this woman, her name is Hasnik. She's Armenian from Aleppo. Actually, most of them I interviewed are from Aleppo. And um, this is a portion of her story. And I, every time we went back to Armenia uh, for a few years, I always made a point to meet with her. During the war, there was no safety, electricity, or water. I had to move my kids from one school to another. My husband lost his job and income. We decided to go to Armenia, but needed money first, so my husband decided to restart his ice-making factory. One day, Daesh, ISIS, kidnapped my father, husband and father-in-law. The factory was located in the countryside of Aleppo, and the kidnapping occurred in the summer of 2013. The factory was only open for one month when they were kidnapped. A worker at the factory told Daesh that my husband was Christian. During the kidnapping, Daesh first got my husband as my father-in-law was visiting a neighbor at the time. My father-in-law saw the kidnapping and said to take him instead because my husband had a family, but Daesh refused. The story was told to me by a male Armenian neighbor who witnessed the kidnapping. The neighbor was wearing female clothes to evade detection. One week later, I couldn't reach my husband by phone. The neighbor was in town, so I invited him over to give me some information. My husband was kidnapped for four months. After one month, a lawyer called me. The lawyer was in the same cell as my husband. He called at 10 p.m. and said that my husband sent him. The lawyer was punished by ISIS and scared during the phone call. I didn't believe him until after the lawyer gave me information about my kids inside jokes, so I believed him then. I offered to pay a ransom, but was refused. They just wanted to punish me. My husband told the lawyer they'd call her ID and told me to delete his number after the call. Three months later, on January 8, 2014, a man called and said an Islamic prayer people who died while I was surrounded by the kids. I immediately called my husband's uncle and I didn't delete the lawyer's number. My husband was kidnapped in the rebel section and I told the lawyer I, I would give him money. The lawyer promised to call me, but didn't. My husband was killed in a horrible way. I wanted to try to bring back his body. In four days, my husband's friends were trying to go to the rebel areas to find his body. Red Crescent went to rebel areas and took pictures. The Red Crescent showed pictures to friends for body identification. They recognized his body, but the Islamic rebels refused to return his body because they didn't want Christian burials, only Islamic ones, after these incidents. Since the kidnapping, my father died, and so now there was no man there to take care of us. Three months later, the kidnapper started calling me. I suspected they were my neighbors and were rebels and passed my number to Daesh. I started contacting the Armenian church who suggested to change my number and location. They called me and threatened my kids at school. This became the easiest way to leave Syria. So I mentioned that because women, or she couldn't, this woman couldn't leave Syria without a male escort, but of course ISIS is a terrorist group and they don't issue death certificates to prove to the Syrian government that I really don't, my father said, um, there's no immediate male family members here. I have my kids that are being targeted now. My husband was killed. Um, there's no way to prove that. So she had to basically bribe some border guards and she had to save her kids. So um, I'm not sure if similar situations are happening in Ukraine, but I, I do notice parallels between the two, which is why I brought up that story. And I, I did go back to see her uh, a year later, and I noticed that there was a huge change in her physically. Like before, she was wearing all black, and then this time she was wearing uh, more colorful clothing, and she just looked happier. Um, so I asked her, how are you doing? And she said, which means I learned my pain. I adapted to it. Um, and she showed me her Syrian and Armenian passports in 2017. 
and uh, again was trying to show me the documentation of her husband's body. And initially I felt really uncomfortable with, with this gesture and wondered how I should proceed without offending her. Like I didn't really want to see the video, but I decided this was important for her to show me embrace myself for the video. I moved next to her on the couch and I cut the video on her cell phone. I cannot distinguish between the dead bodies pictured on the screen as I had never met her husband before. She pointed out his body to me, matter-of-factly, as if she had seen this video countless times before. So that is Hasmik's story, a portion of it. And so now we're going to switch to uh, the different roles that women play in conflict. So we talked about victimization, we talked about human trafficking, or the risk of it. In, in this case, in Syria, there was a lot of concern about gender-based violence, understandably, and uh, enslavement by ISIS, which is not unfounded. So um, in my research, I also found that there are also uh, women that were combatants as well as involved in resistance groups, which we see in both Ukraine and Syria. So in Ukraine, women fought in the military and territorial defense groups as well as resistance groups, and they were able to take on combat roles, I believe, since 2016. Sure. Yeah. Is it? Okay. We can look <laughs> like at that later. Yeah. Um, so in December 2021, um, I was reading that women between the ages 18 and 60 and working in one of 100 professions, like if you're a doctor or a journalist, must register with the local branch of the Ministry of Defense, but you're not exactly required to serve in the military like men are. You just have to like register. Um, so uh, the most recent statistic I have is from March 2021, and I have that 30,000 women are fighting in Ukraine approximately, and 13,000 of these women were combatants, and more than 900 were officers in command positions. This is from, again, March 2021. Um, so I also have an example. I only interviewed one woman who was a combatant, um, completely unexpected. I did not go to Turkey expecting to interview any combatants. I thought I was just interviewing women who fled conflict zones, but you can flee a conflict zone and also serve multiple roles during it. Um, and so this is a smaller example I have from this woman. Um, her name is Arwa. She's a Palestinian-Syrian woman, and she became a sniper for the Free Syrian Army. I just met her at a cafe in Istanbul through a friend of a friend. Um, before the war, she was raised in a Palestinian refugee camp, worked as an English teacher in Syria, and then was arrested by Assad's uh, government. Arwa was widowed before the war and so traumatized by her time in prison that she saw no other choice but to carry and use a weapon. She asked me early in the interview if I could imagine seeing a child shot execution style or their arms cut off. Again, I apologize for this language. I said I could not even imagine it. Arwa talked extensively about her emotions while using a weapon. My translator asked if she had any remorse about being a sniper. Arwa replied that every time she took a shot, she would think about her friends who were executed and whose bodies were burned. She remembers not just the burning flesh, but the burning bones. Now that she is not a sniper anymore, she feels naked without her weapon. Arwa proudly told me how she trained herself to be a sniper. Her grandfather had a, had a, a rifle in the house and showed me a picture of her from a, a media source for a full camouflage, a headscarf, and her automatic weapon dashing across the rubble. She also told me that she met her husband when she first enlisted and that he was supportive of her military training. So again, as you've seen in Ukraine and Syria, women play different roles as, um, 
as combatants, as victims of war, as also um, community organizers, as healthcare professionals, um, supporting the economy as well, while many of their partners are fighting. Um, and the last comment I wanna make about Ukraine is the lack of meaningful participation of women in peace processes as leaders and participants in peace processes. So we've seen that negotiations between Ukraine and Russia from 2014 to 2019, uh, only two women were sent from Ukraine and none were from Russia. This is from the um, Center for Foreign Relations, I believe. Uh, the absence of women leaders, uh, negotiators, and civil society members in meetings currently taking place is likely to have a negative impact on the inclusion of gender and human rights concerns in both the process and outcomes. So Russia doesn't, as far as I can tell, doesn't have the policy on the implementation of WPS, but Ukraine has made an effort, and they're also a co-signatory to NATO's policy on WPS and adoption in conjunction with partner states. Um, so another comment I want to make is I noticed that this is a value, that this is a war about values. I see NATO's purpose is about upholding the values of individual liberty, democracy, human rights, and the rule of law. Um, you actually have to meet those requirements, I believe, to join NATO. And this is exactly where WPS falls in line with this, with official U.S. policy and the Marine Corps values of honor, courage, and commitment. So it all comes full circle. Okay. Um, do we have a little bit more? Yeah. Okay. Good. Um, so now I'm going to jump more so into my research since I, I know I threw a lot of stories at you and I apologize that they were very uh, dark, um, but I just want to be transparent. So um, my fieldwork with Syrian refugee women in Armenia, um, I, I chose this topic because of my family history working with uh, or being descended from Armenian genocide survivors who fled from what is now Turkey to Syria. They actually fled to Aleppo, which is where most of the women I interviewed were from. So there were a lot of overlap that way. Uh, I started noticing similarities between oral history accounts I heard growing up about the genocide and the Syrian conflict, especially since most of the violence was happening in uh, ISIS-controlled areas, which is, um, I understand, like Syrian deserts such as Raqqa or Deir el-Zor. And this, it was the same areas um, where sexual violence and mass killings were happening during the genocide 100 years earlier. So there is a lot of overlap between that. Um, so why, why work in Armenia? Like why are Syrians fleeing to Armenia? So since 2011, approximately 20,000 ethnic Armenians of um, ethnic Armenians from Syria fled to Armenia. Armenia is the smallest country in the South Caucasus. So the South Caucasus are these three little countries, Armenia, Azerbaijan, and Georgia, sandwiched between Turkey, Russia, and Iran. And Armenia is the smallest country in the South Caucasus, and it quickly became one of the highest, uh, one of the leading countries with the highest number of accepting Syrian refugees per capita. Um, and it's very similar to Lebanon in terms of this scale. So I chose working in Armenia because of the language skills I had. I also did preliminary field work in Istanbul and Berlin. Um, I was in Istanbul in 2016 in the summer. So it was actually around the time, I was there actually right around the time with the military crew. So the timing was just perfect. Uh, luckily nothing happened, but I was not anticipating that. And I also went to Berlin that summer in Armenia. And I uh, kept going back to Armenia 
because I wanted to understand what was, what was being said to me during interviews. It also, um, I think, gave me a leg up in terms of getting people's trust. So um, broad strokes of my research site and the methods. I, the methods I used were in anthropology, we call it deep hanging out or participant observation, which is when you spend, um, I spent a lot of time sitting in on NGO vocational training workshops, uh, exhibition sales, um, like encouraging Syrian Armenian women to sell their products that they made um, mostly in embroidery or they started a lot of um, like catering businesses because those were the existing skill sets they had. Um, so I was interested in how are you able to make the transition from being mostly housewives in Syria to being small business owners in Armenia uh, without a male breadwinner in most cases, or sometimes they work together. Um, I also did a lot of interviews and discourse analysis of state and non-state media that in both Syria and Armenia. So I looked at, I don't speak Arabic. I, I studied it, I can't read it. Um, but I looked at the translated versions of like what the Syrian president was saying, what the government was saying about migration in particular, like who is welcome back in Syria. And I compare that to who is welcome, what is Armenia's beckoning mechanisms? So who do they want to come to Armenia? And um, they were really targeting ethnic Armenians from Syria because they were saying, this is your historic homeland and you're welcome back here. But um, the women that I interviewed were actually feeling caught between two places because Syria, by this point, after five generations, it was home. So, but Syria, um, since we talked about the genocide in 1915 a little bit, it is um, also an ironic home. It's both a place of refuge for the women I interviewed, as well as a place of um, painful belonging, which is where there were lots of uh, mass killing sites in Syria. Um, there was kidnappings, forced marriages. So there were really dark things happening in Syria, as well as a place where they can find safety from um, the Ottoman soldiers. So uh, there, there's that juxtaposition there. Um, so just some broad notes that I had about my research is that there was uh, early warning signs, early warning systems, which is something we address in WPS. There's an article in Hawks, Doves, and Canaries by Dr. Offerman about uh, women as warning systems or indicators. And I was repeatedly told I just felt something was different in Aleppo. I could sense, I didn't want my kids going to school. I could, things were picking up, like mothers really sense that. And so, um, it definitely holds true. And I also found that there was a deep nostalgia for Syria, but they were faced with nationalism in Armenia. So um, in terms of choosing, uh, there were three legal statuses that uh, women had the option of choosing. One was temporary resident status, another was refugee status or citizenship. So. Women most likely chose citizenship, but men under the age of 27, they have to do compulsory military service in Armenia. But this also means that they had to do compulsory military service in Syria as well. So they didn't really want to do both. Um, so they were viewed, the men who were under 27 that chose refugee status were generally viewed as being not patriotic, not very manly or masculine for choosing to do, uh, to have refugee status because they didn't want to do uh, military service a second time. They already did it in Syria. So um, moving on ahead, their uh, WPS concerns 
that I noticed were uh, the protection of women. We talked about the sexual violence or the threat of it while fleeing Syria and the roles that have been played during conflict with victims, community organizers, um, that there was a recent war in the South Caucasus between Armenia and Azerbaijan over Nagorno-Karabakh Republic. I've been there uh, that area a few times. And um, women during this period two years ago, which is actually after I left Armenia, they wove camouflage nets, delivered hot Syrian lunches to the front lines, and were involved in fundraising efforts. Um, some Syrian Armenian men enlisted and joined in the defense efforts. And um, during the Syrian conflict in Armenia, oh wait, sorry, in Syria, while generally most women did not need to work, they were still extremely involved in social affairs, mostly tied to the church as ethno-religious minorities. And they brought these networks to Yerevan, the capital of Armenia, during the war. And established NGOs to help women get on their feet and um, start their own businesses and survive. Okay, so I think we're running a little bit out of time. So uh, to conclude, I want to end with another one more story about the relief and recovery efforts of Syrian women helping other Syrian women in Armenia. And the last story I have is from a director of an NGO. Her name is Karan Sem. And she was actually from a wealthy upper middle class uh, family in Aleppo. They left at the beginning of 2012. I noticed that the wealthier individuals were able to leave earlier during the war, mostly around 2012, whereas people who um, wanted, who thought the war would die down or they, they thought they could stick it out a little bit longer, they left later in 2016. But I think there are there is something to be said about class and migration. Um, this quote is from Harantem. She said, life was different in Armenia. I didn't know anyone. There were no Armenians from Syria at that time. After July 2012, uh, I le later learned that this was the site of the time of major bombings in Aleppo. Uh, bombings that affected a lot of the women's houses. Some of them fell directly in their living rooms or one woman owned, she was a doctor, and it just destroyed her clinic and house were attached to the same building and it just destroyed both. So after July 2012, many senior Armenians came after the bombs. I thought, what would the newcomers do? We all have to come together. I started negotiating with Syrian Armenian businessmen and women from different organizations in Syria. In March 2013, we registered Aleppo NGO. In 2015, the Save a Life project began. We helped 480 people come to Yerevan. It was very difficult. Too many people from Armenia didn't help. Um, we brought people after six months, rent subsidized, but then asked, what will they do? There are too many people against that. If things get better in Syria, they can sell properties in Syria and live well in Armenia. When Syria becomes safer, because we can't sell now, but women have started working here in Armenia. So they weren't, this interview was in 2019, and a lot of people wanted to go back to Syria and sell their properties and return to Armenia, but it still wasn't really safe. Uh, she's another thing I want to point out is that Syrian women got more Syrian Armenian women got more confident. Their family was relying on them. Everything was perfect before in Syria. Um, she's this is her view. In Syria, Syrian Armenian women held important roles. Many of them were tasked with taking care of the home and cultivating Armenian cultural life in a post-genocide community for generations. However, Padansan noted that their confidence grew upon migrating to Armenia and learning that they could also contribute to supporting the families financially. Furthermore, everything is perfect before in Syria because uh, this perceives, this refers to the perceived financial security experienced by Syrian Armenian women in Syria before the war. End quote. 
Okay, so to summarize, um, I know I threw a lot at you, but the, I wanted, if there's anything I want to take away from this talk, is that there's different roles in them that women play during conflict and the extends beyond victimization. Only referring to women as victims of war uh, negates their agency and the different roles that they play as combatants, community organizers, uh, while not also not underestimating the seriousness of sexual violence. Yeah, so I think that's about it. And I'm happy to um, take other questions. Okay, thank you very much. great. Thank you, Dr. So for our folks in the audience, as always, uh, if you have questions, just go ahead and throw them in the chat and I'll just be reading them off my chat window here um, as, uh, as time allows. But um, if we want to rewind um, sort of back to your, your, your role here at MCU, mm -hmm. um, if you could describe to the audience a little bit, you know, you were, you were brought here under a certain mandate. Um, so can you describe maybe like what your mandate was and then how you've been working to either integrate WPS or enhance WPS studies that are already present in the curricula? here at MCU for, for Marine Corps PMA? Sure, happy to answer that. So my primary task here was to integrate um, women, peace, and security into professional military education. So that meant we, there are seven schools here, or I think six now. And anyway, I had to meet with all of the schools. So there's enlisted and officer schools. And for those who might not know, and uh, go through their existing material. We went through their lesson cards, uh, worked together with other contractors from RAND. Um, those women that I worked with, they're also, uh, I mean, they were uh, Marine Lieutenant Colonels or former Marine officers. And we worked together going through the material, um, seeing what was existing and like the act upon, which is most of the case, and just adding recommendations for what could be included. So, for example, if there are scenarios that focus only on men, for example, we, we suggest adding women there or using only male pronouns, especially talking about leadership, we recommended including female pronouns as well, being more inclusive. So measures like that, as well as providing resources for reading and um, other things like that. We also, so we went through the curriculum review and we provided a report for integration or just for recommendations. And then that was, that was the first task we had. The second task we had is to produce two online classes. One is for general purpose, and the second one is for senior leaders on women, peace, and security. So we are wrapping both of those initiatives up this month, so it's busy. Yeah, yeah it, <laughs> so, it has been a busy month. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, no, great. Thank, I appreciate you giving that sort of um, that, that background here for what your, uh, what your role has been. So we'll, we'll shift back to sort of the content that you talked about. And I've got an uh, initial question here from Glenn, mm -hmm. who's asking, uh, noting you travel through a lot of dangerous areas. Um, uh, sometimes they got more dangerous after you left. But either way, traveling through unsecure, un uncertain environments. Did you have, what was your sort of your security posture? Did you have any security support, anything attached to you? Um, no. did, your, did your US citizenship or passport provide you any sort of protection? Well, I um, initially I wanted to go to southeastern Turkey, but that was a flat no from my university. I wanted to go where my grandfather was from in Gaziantep, which is southeastern Turkey. But yeah, university administrators were flat out not happening, which is probably, in retrospect, a very wise decision. Mm -hmm. um, I, Istanbul was deemed as a safer option, so I went there and there was a bomb, which I was 
I mean, I was far away, but is it during um, the the coup? Yeah, I think that was. They said it was a PKK bomb, okay. something. I'm not really sure, but yeah, uh, was not prepared for that. Um, as a citizen, I did have. Um, I got updates from the State Department, but there was no like. And I was also an independent researcher, like I was a grad student, um, also a Fulbright researcher. So none of those require like going with the teams. I just had to, I relied on uh, what were the locals saying. So for example, um, for the bomb in Turkey, I didn't know about that. Um, I mean, they got my email later from the State Department, but it wasn't timely. Mm -hmm. I heard about it on the ground from like local Syrian women who had fled there. They said, maybe don't go to this neighborhood today, just stay here. So I heard about it from them rather than the State Department. So, um, and Armenia was, I felt pretty secure there, but also as a citizen, I, um, if I needed anything, the embassy was there and they were really supportive. And um, I didn't have any issues in Germany. Although flying from, uh, I think Germany to Istanbul, there was, there was a, a bomb at the airport the same airport I was flying through, but I missed it by a matter of days. And when you walked in, it was like there was no damage there, which is very surprising. So, yeah, I definitely had um, some surprises in terms of that. Yeah, so actually on that, if we could maybe expand a little bit in terms of, you mentioned how you had some of the locals, so don't go to that neighborhood yeah. today, basically, right? So how did you develop those local contacts? Um, did you Did you have... You know people who you were talking to before you went over there or did you have a i don't know what the right term is like a you know a handler or a local guide or something who was able to do it so, or how did you sort of develop no that I did all this contacting people reaching out to ngos so in Istanbul, there's an ngo called small projects Istanbul. um it focuses on having like syrian women start their own initiatives about like um such as making jewelry that was called drop earrings not bombs ironically and uh, so i would reach out to them i asked to volunteer as a like an english tutor or to help with childcare, just whatever i could do to volunteer for the summer um help them out watch the kids and then interview the, the mothers later so anything i could do which is mostly um child care in germany at another ngo there and in turkey or helping out with English. So it's just, I had to um, develop those contacts beforehand, but people were really receptive. Okay. There's no handler. No handler, just, no, just you, lone grad student. Wow. <laughs> yeah. That's quite an adventure. Yeah, it was, I, yeah, it was, I actually miss it, but there's some things I don't miss. Yeah, yeah, I imagine. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, another question from the chat here from Albert Lee, and he, he mentions you talked about your interview with the former sniper. Mm -hmm. And the question is, did you talk to anybody else that had previously, you know, served or contributed to the rebel groups? Um, or did, no, or did you have any um, activists who, who have been, I guess, activists, you know, um, non-combatants who were still active in the area trying to to conduct relief or, or sustain infrastructure and services. I did interview some people who had fled from, um, who were, they were imprisoned by the Assad government. And so that was a very sensitive topic, especially talking with ethnic Armenians, a lot of whom support Assad, just um, minority politics. So um, I had to be very neutral in terms of uh, my reactions to information because I 
not doing Intel, I was just there collecting research as a grad student. Um, so I had to be very clear uh, about my positionality. And um, I'm sorry, I forgot your question. Oh, just in terms of uh, if, you, if you talk to a lot of either rebel groups or activists um, mm -hmm. in any large numbers or if they were more a, a minority of your studies? Oh, uh, yes. I didn't talk to any uh, rebel groups. I did talk to some uh, activists who had fled were imprisoned. They told me horror stories about um, basically getting in prison, being, women being threatened with rape, but not actually being raped. So just, or no. Um, so one woman was imprisoned and she said that like uh, the guards would threaten the male prisoners that she would be raped if they didn't tell her, tell them, if the male prisoners didn't tell the guards what they wanted to hear, um, but they didn't actually rape her. So I heard stories about that and about kidnappings by the Assad government. So I heard, I did hear a fair number of stories, especially in Istanbul, about uh, a lot of people who had fled um, and were activists. And I also didn't have a chance to talk to a lot of men um, women, just maybe because of my gender, I just had easier access to. And mm -hmm. whenever I asked to speak to their husband, they were like, well, why do you want to talk to him? You can talk to me. So I think it was an access, which is I'd be interested in talking to more men in the future, too. Okay. Um, so another um, thing I'd, I'd written down because it reminded me actually of a, a point that we had Dr. Joanna Sequeira on a mm -hmm. previous episode and uh, talking about, you know, the international humanitarian law, the responsibilities, as you mentioned, of if you control the zone, you're responsible for what happens in there. And um, one of her points was that the actual enforcement of this, or not just the enforcement, but the prosecution afterwards is is very hard. Mm -hmm. um, what was your, did you ever, um, what was your experience? Did any of the, uh, you know, the refugees or the people you talked to, did they ever get a chance, you know, to seek some sort of, you know, justice either under humanitarian law or or you know regional um judiciaries for the things that have happened to them um and if 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 or if not what are some of those implications do you think for you know ukrainian women trying to seek that same sort of resolution post-war that's a good um that's a good question and uh no they didn't seek justice i think it was a matter of just settling in and a lot of times uh what i would comment upon for the Ukrainian scenarios to think about if the women are mothers in particular, are they prioritizing their children's trauma and getting counseling over their own? Like some women told me, I, I don't like Hasnik, the one I talked about whose husband was killed by ISIS. She said, I don't want to um, get help until my kids are okay and they have therapy and counseling. Mm -hmm. So she was uh, not prioritizing herself. So maybe that might be happening as well in Ukraine, I'm not sure. But in terms of justice mechanisms, um, nothing that I've heard. They definitely need something. Yeah, I mean, that, that kind of tracks with what uh, Dr. Seguir had said, and it's it's uh, it's not an optimistic outcome. Yeah. Um, but I, I mean, I think I, I guess I would hope, given the the more extensive ability to document in Ukraine, at least, yeah, yeah maybe there's possibility for better outcomes. Yeah, um, at least in some cases. Yeah, I hope so like there's more activity being done yeah um and actually uh in terms of that documentation albert lee here has another uh, question that kind of ties mm -hmm. into that and he says that the syrian conflict and, and its effect on civilians have struggled to sort of make keep itself in the news you yeah know, 10 years on now right 
um, what can be done to ensure that the same fatigue doesn't set in with Ukraine? And I would I'd say, like, my perspective is anecdotal, but it has been noticeable that, mm -hmm. you know, after the initial I, I remember, you know, some of the accounts I followed on social media, like the, you know, open source intelligence people who were constantly documenting stuff, you know, like every day there'd be like the open rooms and chat discussions. You'd have hundreds of people in there that went on for maybe six weeks and then the frequency would sort of die down. Um, so I, I think it's that we're definitely starting to see that to some respect yeah. already. How do we how do we counter that? How do we make sure that focus stays on the things that need to, you know, to be rectified when the war is over? That's a great question. Um, what I would do, or what I'm trying to do is I'm focusing on sharing the stories, which is why I wanted to um, throw a few at you today. And I'm writing a book about uh, my field work. It's my first book, but um, yeah, just explaining like there's stories about uh, fleeing from Syria. So I think that's one way of keeping it active. But in terms of Ukraine, uh, maybe it's just one way of keeping conversations like this happening, talking, uh, is connecting it to prior conflicts because even um, the preparing for this talk today, it made me think about uh, Bosnia and sexual violence and how we didn't really hear about that a lot today, but it's still extremely relevant, especially in terms of WPS. So um, my answer would be just talking about the stories that we heard because it makes it more tangible. And I think people remember stories more than they might remember numbers. Mm -hmm. at least that's my personal bias. I remember stories more than historical dates. Yeah, no, I, I think that's that's uh, that's fair. And also, I, I guess, I hope is not the right word, but I think that there's that extensive ability to document and show things. Yeah. Um, you know, there's probably a lot of reasons for it compared to Syria, but I, I, I think just the communications infrastructure that that's present in Ukraine probably more. Uh, more intricate, more um, more extensive than the, the average Syrian probably had access to. So at, at least I would think there's the volume of stuff coming out. There's more of it, and that'll make it harder to ignore because um, you just you see so much more because uh, there's just so many phones, other phones, cameras, sensors on that battlefield that can yeah. show you these things. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why I wanted to really focus on um, women's perspectives, because I think especially they get really swept under the rug, especially during the Syrian refugee crisis. Like a lot of them when I interviewed, they were like, I don't want to be um, like a poor refugee, like one of those poor refugees fleeing on the rafts across BC. Uh, so there is a lot of that narrative happening. Um, so that's why I wanted to delve into their experiences of migration through their perspectives instead of not just wanting to be seen as victims, but that there's more to their stories. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So a couple more questions and then uh, mm -hmm. if we have nothing else in the chat, we'll wrap up. Okay. Um, I want to, uh, I, I noted some of the numbers. I want to make sure I got them right because mm -hmm. they were striking. So you've done some looking at, yeah. you know, the numbers of Ukrainian women who were who were fighting or who were in the Ukrainian military. Mm -hmm. And you said there were 30,000 who were, uh, you know, sort of under arms, if you will, or yes. wearing the uniform, 13,000 who were actual combatants, and then 900 who were officers. And um, I, did, I don't want to, because I don't have the numbers on the US side, I don't want to make um, inaccurate comparisons, but to me, that seems like very significant, yeah. um, especially even, uh, you know, the 13, 30,000 in uniform, but 13,000 combatants, which, mm -hmm. you know, realize it's not all infantry per se, but um, 
don't know if some of them are because I've seen some of those pictures and that, that probably also includes, you know, supporting fires, things mm -hmm. that are close to the front line. However you cut it, those are significant numbers. Um, what, uh, what are some things that maybe the, you know, both the Marine Corps and the U.S. military as, you know, we're all sort of watching and learning these lessons from uh, what's going on there right now. Um, what in terms of integration that these numbers speak to and their performance on the battlefield, what, what can we maybe take away um, to uh, on our side to, to, you know, for a smaller military, numbers are remarkable. Um, what do we do to maybe walk in that direction? Um, just from reviewing this stuff we came up with in the curriculum review, like even talking about, um, like, I'm not a Marine, but I learned a lot about Marine Corps history this past year, especially. So I noticed that a lot of it was focused on um, prestigious male Marines, but there are so many uh, noteworthy female Marines as well that were not really given the same attention. So I think being more explicit about how they're mentioned, and it, not just their names, but what about their character is exemplary for Marines to learn about um, in terms of their core values. Um, so talking about that more, um, having more guest lectures by female generals, like, um, for example, General Lori Reynolds, I believe, mm -hmm. she came and we gave a, a talk to the WPS Scholar Session. I think that was really important that she was here and was active. Um, we had um, Dr. Haney come as well, Dr. Jeanette Haney um, come and talk to us as well. So I think having more visibility um, would be instrumental. and. About Ukraine, again, like I'm not an expert on gender there as well, but I did read that about prior to the war, um, about a quarter of the military was female or close to that. So it's pretty significant number. Yeah, I mean, yeah. That, that, that is very significant. Yeah, it's just what I read. Again, I could be totally wrong and I'm happy to be wrong, but it's just what I read last night. So I would say uh, talking more visibility, um, I was looking at the articles about but what are the roles that women are playing in Ukraine in terms of um, uh, combat roles, and a lot of the, them were medics. It seems like. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, however you kind of, you know, those are significant numbers um, yeah. as a percentage of the fighting force. Which uh, again, I don't have the U.S. numbers in front of me, but I'm pretty sure it's not that, not that high a percentage. Yeah. Like, what is that for the Marine Corps? You think? Um, or yes, yeah, very. Yeah, not not a not, quarter. Not a quarter. Um, <laughs> definitely not. Um, no, but yeah, I think the uh, just showing the different roles is yeah something we could do. And I'll one other anecdotal story. I uh, I think I'd sent you the link a, a few weeks back about the music video for when the Ukrainian team won the uh, the Eurovision contest. Oh, I don't think you did, but it's okay. Oh, I didn't. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I need to send it because it was um, one won the song. It was um, it was all about the essentially the. The women of Ukraine and how the war was affecting them. The song itself, I read the translation, like it was really powerful. But oh. uh, the official music video, like not the performance on the stage, but the official music video that the band did. Every there were a bunch of people in uniform in that video. Every single one was a woman. There was not a, wow. a man in uniform to be seen. And they were doing everything from you know medical assistance, you know pulling pulling children out of rubble, to you know being there under arms, you know getting on the trains to go to the front line. Um, so I probably, I really thought I did, so <laughs> I'll make sure I do, okay. um, because it, I thought it was a very striking yeah. representation. Like there's a very, very strong message that that video was trying to send. Yeah, it really is like that. So it's been easy to note that during the war, visibility. Yeah. Um, okay. So, um, last 
question I'll have for you. I, this is sort of a more general one, but sure. for the audience, um, if they're interested in learning more about organizations, mm -hmm. both in Syria and Ukraine that are trying to, you know, alleviate um, the issues that, you know, the, you know, mm -hmm. women, daughters, um, refugees of all stripes have to face. What are some organizations you're familiar with that you could recommend people look at to learn more and possibly support? That's a great question. Um, like the ones that I uh, had interactions with, I was affiliated with UNHCR in Armenia. They did great work. They had smaller partner organizations like GIZ. I think um, they're European based, but I also talked to a local Armenia group called Aleppo NGO, um, where I think I think it works. The model works better if it's um, by refugee women for refugee women. It's because they understand the situation probably better than Westerners. Um, and there was also other similar organizations like um, I think I don't think I interviewed Red Cross, but yeah. So I would say GIZ, uh, UNHCR. I reached out to several others, but they're just not coming to me right now, but I'm happy to give a list later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If something comes to mind, we can throw it into the, the show notes as links that people can look at. Sure. And and I'm assuming like Red Cross is always a good good yeah. Network, right. Yeah. You can't definitely. hardly go wrong with the Red Cross. Yeah. Or or I should say is the uh is the Red Crescent for the Syrian yes. situation more appropriate? Yes, I think it is. Okay. And so this is yeah, what I did before going to do field work is I just um because I went in pretty much not knowing anyone, I just reached out to a bunch of NGOs, uh, main actors there, and just asked if I could just spend time with them. So I, I can dig up those names. They're just not coming to me right now. Apologies. Yeah, no, we, we yeah. can easily plug that in later. Okay. Um, all right. Well, I don't have any more questions in the chat, and we've been going for a little bit more than an hour, so um, I think I think we're we're good. Awesome. Um, so, Dr. Matosian, thank you very much for coming on here again. Finally got this this one done. Like I said, it's, it's definitely been long overdue, yeah. and um, hopefully we uh, we can get you on again during your time here at MCU. Sure. Um, to our audience, thanks for joining us um, this morning. Now we're into the afternoon, and uh, I'll I'll give you a heads up for those who are live here. It doesn't really help those who are going to listen to this after by the time I edit it. But for uh, those online uh, later today, I'll also be doing another down the rabbit hole um, on the Russia Ukraine war with Dr. Yuval Weber, and we'll have a return guest in Dr. Rosella Capella-Zielinski, and she's going to be talking to us about the, uh, you know, the emerging um, grain and food crisis that the uh, the inability of Ukraine to ship its grain is going to have around the world because they are a provider, they're a global provider, and that food is not going anywhere. And that's going to, that's just one more second order effect that this war is causing. So she's going to walk us through that. Um, all right. But again, thank you, everybody, and uh, join us for the next episode. Education is what's important. Training, preparation for the expected. Education, preparation for the unexpected.